Hey, thanks for joining us today. We are carrying on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And again, the, the focus for Luke as a, as a writer, as a historian, is, is to create this detailed account so that his friend Theophilus would have confidence um, that he would have certainty in what he had been taught. And so here we are today. We're going to be looking at trying to bring some certainty uh, to what we've been taught. And for those of you who are, this is a new teaching, uh, I'm excited for you because you get to get into these things on the ground floor. And hopefully the teaching that we have for you today will help you uh, have a desire to go even deeper into some of the other topics that arise because of this particular teaching. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 45. And if you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is, I want you to go ahead and use your table of contents because by using it, you're just going to become more familiar with where things are, and, and I want you to have confidence in that way. All right, so Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 45, and um, here's what it says. So it starts off by saying the next day. And so just so you're aware, it, it referencing um, the day after this Mount Transfiguration, uh, where Jesus is standing with Moses and Elijah and there's a conversation there. Pastor Andrew uh, spoke on that last week. And, uh, and so we're piggybacking that. We're carrying forward. It says the next day, after they had come down the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only son. An evil spirit keeps seizing him and making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I beg your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you that, that we have this opportunity to look into your word, and we're going to see something here, Lord, that's probably going to be challenging for us, but also encouraging for us at the same time. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So, when I was younger, uh, and we were new to Canada, some of you may or may not know this, but I arrived in Canada when I was around four years old uh, from Europe. And so we were new to Canada. My mom's English wasn't like exceptional. It was good, but it wasn't like exceptional. Often there was um, there were times where it was just really easy to confuse my mom. Uh, but one day after grocery shopping, my mom purchased these barrel-shaped uh, potato products, and. And these things were amazing. I mean, like my, my mom introduced them uh, to my siblings and me as croquettes. Uh, you may not have heard of this before. Uh, this was new to us as well. And whenever my mom would put these out for supper or for lunch, we got super excited. And we called them croquettes. From the time that I, don't know, I was probably like six or seven years old, we were calling them croquettes all our lives. And, and, and so fast forward a number of years and Janet and I, are, are married and, and uh, we're talking about the things we enjoyed as kids and I mentioned croquettes. And Chad was like, well, what are you talking about, croquettes? 
And, uh, and I was like, you know, croquettes, like everybody knows these things, right? Well, she had no idea what I was talking about until I described them physically. And, and as it turns out, uh, she had a different name for them. She called them tater tots. And she, she's just laughing at me. There's tears rolling because she realizes that like, I'm just calling these things some weird name. Well, as it turns out, my mom um, was using on the packaging what the French side was at the time. And so the French name on the packaging was croquettes, but when you turn it around, it actually said tater tots or tasty taters or something to that effect. And, but I just, I believe so strongly that I was right. And, and when she was laughing at me after we we're talking about the packaging and she's tears rolling, like I, I have to say, like my pride was wounded a little bit there, but I was laughing with her at the same time. And, but, but I really believed that I was right even though I was wrong. And, uh, and I think in life, we all believe a, a wide variety of different things, uh, things that we believe to be true and right. But I want to suggest to you that, that there are things that we believe that don't necessarily cause action in our lives. Like these are truth claims that we would hang on to, uh, but they don't necessitate anything from us. Like I believe two plus two is four, but that doesn't require any kind of action on my part in terms of things that I would do um, in, the, in the realm of, of, of working with other people. Well, today I want to look at a story here that, we've that we're coming to, this part in this historical research that Luke has been doing. Um, and I want to pick out the Lord's message to the people that he's dealing with here. Uh, it's, it's regarding belief, and, and I want us to be able to apply these things to ourselves today. And, and as we look at this, I think it's important that we recognize that, that every believer needs to be able to see that when it comes to doing the Lord's work, very specifically, when it comes to living for Jesus, when it comes to doing the Lord's work, when it comes to living out our faith, our ability to be effective is, is directly equal to our dependency. Our ability to be effective is directly linked, uh, proportionate to our dependency. And the issue for the disciples in this particular story, this account, is not actually a lack of power from Jesus. Jesus' words make it plain that the disciples could, could have exercised the demon from this child if they had just prayed and fasted. And so it's not that there wasn't access. It's not the, the problem here that, and, and we're going to see as we focus on, on these 13 verses, that the, there's beliefs that are at play here. And these beliefs are impact in very significant ways. And so we're going to focus on the faith of the disciples. We're going to talk about a father in the story, and we're going to talk about this demon in the story. So if you talk about the first part, the disciples, uh, verses 37 to 41, the next day when they came down the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man from the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and suddenly he screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. 
Now, this is probably one of the harshest encounters I think the disciples had with Jesus in terms of him rebuking them and calling them out on things. We see Jesus do this with the Pharisees on a very regular basis, but but this is one time that we see Jesus take a pretty aggressive verbal approach to the disciples. But the passage details the disciples' failure to cast out a particular demon. And the story makes sense. Um, like you have to take into account Luke chapter 9, verse 1, like right at the beginning of this chapter, where Jesus specifically, he calls together his 12 disciples, gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. And, and I want you to notice in chapter 9, verse 1 there, um, the word all. It's an incredibly key word. They had the power and the authority to get rid of all. And now something happened. And they can't do it. And and the indication from the passage is that the nine disciples that were present for the failure were relying on themselves rather than relying on Jesus. That's the indication in the passage. They didn't pray or fast. Now, the idea here of praying and fasting is that we are subordinating subordinating ourselves to Jesus But it's also the recognition that there's a dependency that we'll have on him. And so where there is a lack of praying and fasting as relates to the things that he calls us into, where there's a lack of prayer specifically as you you look at the other accounts that detail this, I think what we learn is that to be effective is directly equal to our being dependent. The more effective I want to be in ministry, the more effective I want to be for the Lord, the more impact I want to have for the Lord is, is dependent on how much more I'm dependent on the Lord rather than on me. If I were one of the disciples on that day, I think I would have felt the sting from Jesus' rebuke, right? Say, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? He sounds like a parent who just came home and came home to a messy house and they're scolding their children. I think my cheeks would have flushed. My stomach probably would have felt in knots a little bit. Um, and inside, I think I'd be grieving a little uh, about how I've offended Jesus in this way. But I think sometimes we need a rebuke to wake us up and to show us where we're really headed. Better a rebuke from Jesus than something even more severe, right? Like Proverbs 15, 31 to 32 says this, He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. And so just to recognize, like, look, a rebuke never feels good. It sounds harsh. It feels terrible. But it's a life-giving rebuke, meaning that it's challenging something that's going on in our lives that's leading us away from Jesus and instead... It's causing us to consider what it would look like to move towards Jesus. Jesus is frustrated by the lack of faith in his disciples, and he says so, and then he heals the boy and restores the family. The focus on the passage is on the disciples and their failure to depend on Jesus and to do what Jesus gave them the power and the authority to do. But they're doing it on their own. 
Like they didn't pray, they didn't fast. And so that because they were able to do it before, they're now coming forward into this scenario and they're unable to do it. Something is different at play here. And the only indicator we have for what's different and at play here is, is this language from Jesus that says they didn't pray or fast. Like this type takes pray, prayer or fasting. And so there's this dependency on the Lord. We also note that there's this arguing that's taking place between the disciples and the Pharisees. And we don't know what the argument's about. But what we do learn in this passage, as you learn from this message and next week's message, is that there is this attitude that is needing to be corrected amongst the disciples. There's this attitude of, like next week we're going to talk about it, next week they, we find that, that they're arguing with each other as to who's greatest in the kingdom. And this is in this account, like, like these are moments apart. There is this complaint that somebody else is casting a demon out in Jesus' name, and, and the disciples try to stop him because he's not one of them. There is this attitude that needs to shift. And so there's something about the focus on self, what they're able to do, rather than who they're dependent on. And so the belief of the disciples wasn't a problem. They believed that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. They believed that they were given this power from him. But the problem with their particular belief is that it caused them to rely on themselves, to see themselves as the one who are able to do these things rather than the one whom God uses to do these things through. And those are subtly different, but they are different. And so Jesus is frustrated by their lack of faith, which is the belief in action. And, 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 and this entire narrative continues on to describe more faith interactions within this narrative. For example, the father. Uh, the father in verses 38 to 40, it says, A man in the crowd called out to Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my one and only child. A spirit seizes him and suddenly and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive him out, but they could not. Now, I want you to imagine yourself in the stat shoes. Like for those of you who are parents out there, um, or, or maybe you're close to somebody that, that you have just seen uh, overtaken by something that is just so detrimental and clearly um, is, is just dragging a person down. Imagine for yourself, if you were in the father's shoes, that your son is under attack. They're taken over. It's, it's terrifying. It, they're screaming. They're convulsing. They're foaming at the mouth. They, they're being constantly battered and beaten. And if that is your one and only child, wouldn't you do absolutely anything you could to make sure that that child was going to get taken care of? Now, we don't know from the story. Like, here's what we do know. We, we don't know from the story all the different avenues that the father had taken for his son. We understand that the son was overtaken by this demon from a very young age. And, and so we, we know that he came to the disciples. But I think we can presume that he also at one point probably came to the teachers of the law, to, to uh, the priests, the rabbis. 
It's likely that he did. And so here's a dad who's trying to do everything he possibly can, and everything he has tried comes up short. This has been going on from a young age. They probably tried all kinds of different remedies, um, the medicines that were available in the day. They tried everything, and nothing worked. And yet the father does not give up trying, but you could see that it's having an impact on his faith. And here's what I mean. In Mark chapter 9, verse 20 to 24, uh, which is the, the same account in the Gospel of Mark. So they brought him, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. So remember, Jesus just finished rebuking his disciples for their lack of faith. And here we have a dad who, who believes that Jesus can do something, right? Like, but, but he's coming at it from a lack of faith perspective. And he says, like, if you can. And so Jesus responds, if you can. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, what the man says here can sound contradictory, right? Like, it's like, I believe, help me with my unbelief or my disbelief. He claims to believe, but he, he confesses an unbelief. And, and it took me a while to appreciate the wisdom that's actually in these words. Um, now I see that the father understood that faith in God is not just a one and done choice or just a switch that God turns on at the moment of our salvation. Like every single believer deals with this. Like we believe that God is capable of doing absolutely anything, and yet we have this, this gnawing at us of a, of a disbelief about whether or not we will actually experience God doing something, right? Like early on as a believer, I heard the idea that God changes us gradually as the layers of an onion are peeled off. Like this is, this is an image that was given to me. And it, you could apply that to faith. Like how much we grow in our belief over time depends on, depends on our willingness to let go of trying to control the scenario. Depends on the submission to God's will. It, it depends on trusting in God's ability. And so this father very quickly realized that he needed to admit his inability to heal his own son. And then he declared that Jesus could do the healing. So the dad couldn't do it. So he goes to the disciples. The disciples couldn't do it. Jesus comes along. He's this great healer that the dad clearly likely heard about. And so he goes to Jesus, like, look, take pity on us. Can you heal? Uh, if, you, you know, if you can, help us if you can. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about if I can? Nothing is impossible for the one who believes. And so he declares that Jesus could do the healing, and the result was, a joy, was joyous. His child's health was renewed, and his faith increased. Now, within this one sentence is a mix of discouragement and a weak kind of hope. Uh, Jesus perceives this, and he asks, like, if you can? And he then offers the long-suffering father, a better perspective. And this is a, it's a well-known response. Um, this well-known response put the man's heart on display, and it shows steps that we can take to grow in our own faith. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He states his love for God, right? Like there's this, 
this recognition that God is the one that he worshiped. I do believe. But then he, then he admits that his faith is not as strong as it could be. It's a weakness within his spirit. And he recognizes it and he confesses it like he admits it. But not just that he confesses it and he admits it, but he seeks help in it, right? Like, help me with my unbelief. And then Jesus asks, or he asks Jesus to change him, right? Like, to be the willingness to be made stronger. It's an interesting thing because I think what we have in our North American church is this, we believe, but we ask for help with our unbelief. And, and, and our unbelief is, is where it sits in where like we could pray for healing for somebody, um, but we have this unbelief as to whether or not it will actually potentially happen, right? But we'll still do it. And, and it's this idea that, that we wrestle with, I wrestle with. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie to you. Like I actually, I actually don't like that wrestling match. I do not like my unbelief. And yet I know that I need Jesus, more of Jesus, more dependency on Jesus in order for me to be able to overcome my unbelief. And I, and I think um, in a world where, where there's so much disappointment, I, I wonder if we are predisposed to think that things may not turn out rather than presume that they would. But there's a third party here that also has beliefs, and that's the demon. Now, that might sound strange to you, but the reality is, is that as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we've had many encounters of Jesus with the demonic, and, but we've never kind of honed in and, and just looked at, okay, well, what were these demonic beings believing or understanding? Verse 42 to 43, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And so in this last-ditch effort to keep the boy from getting to Jesus, the demon tosses him to the ground, overtakes him, he's foaming at the mouth, the desperate father is doing everything in his power, but the demonic forces throw up one last resistance to keep the boy from getting to Jesus. And so it's important to know that the demon actually has beliefs as well. The demon would most certainly have a belief regarding Jesus along with beliefs regarding people. Now, very quickly, the beliefs regarding people, uh, demons hate us. Like that just goes without saying, like demons hate us people. We're created in the image of God. There is a despising of that according to most commentaries and, and scholars. And, and so the idea is here is, is that demons want us dead. They, they, they want to separate us from God to the best of their ability. If you are a faithful follower of Jesus, you need to know that they want to minimize your impact. And so they're going to try and get you to depend on you more than depending on God. That's kind of what happened with the disciples. They're going to discourage you. Uh, they want to get you to think that nothing is going to be able to take away whatever it is that you're dealing with, which is what they're doing with the Father here and the Son. Uh, and so then when, when dealing specifically with the demon, you see the will of the demon come into play when the father's trying to bring the boy to Jesus and, and the demon acts out and it tries to prevent this boy from coming to Jesus. And so this belief about Jesus, the demon would have known that Jesus could likely and would, could and likely would free the boy of his evil presence. 
That's something that he knew, that Jesus could and likely would free the boy of his evil presence. The demon would know that Jesus has the authority to do so, and, that, and he would know that Jesus is, in fact, God. Like, demons don't disbelieve in Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the church, and he's discussing the difference between faith and, uh, and action, a faith with action versus faith without action. And in James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, he says this, But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith with deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And so the demon believes right things about the nature and the purpose of who Jesus is. But they are absolutely incapable of choosing Jesus. Incapable of submitting to Jesus. In this one claim, Jesus shows that the belief, that belief alone is not genuine faith. You can believe whatever you want, but it doesn't necessarily produce genuine faith, right? Because faith has action to it, right? So if I say that, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, if I say that I believe in God, but that belief in God changes nothing about who I am, then all I've got is this intellectual truth that I'm going to hang on to. But it's not this saving faith knowledge that causes change in my life. And, and so this is, it's, it's a, it may seem like a minor distinction, but it's actually quite significant because the demons believe in God, but they're not saved. So something distinguishes belief from faith. And James indicates that it's action. Now, the demons are spirit creatures. They've seen God. They know that he exists. They know, that, they know the Almighty God. They have this knowledge and this belief which has impacted them emotionally as they shudder at the idea of the eternal destruction that awaits them, right? Like even the demons believe and shudder. So there's, they believe, there's an emotional response, but that's all there is. And, and what James is doing here is, is saying, look, if, if, your, if your belief in God, if your faith in God doesn't produce action in your life, then you have a dead faith. It's not that different than the demon. So, so here's a question, and this is provocative, and I get that, but here's my question. Does, is there a marketable difference or a marked difference between your belief in God and a demon's belief in God? The demons believe that he is everything he says he is. And they're not saved. There's no faith action in that part. And now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that works save us. What I'm saying is that genuine faith, saving faith, produces good works in us. And we're saved towards good works, right? Not by good works. And so it's important for us to recognize that, that the idea that, that faith that's alive, faith that saves, produces something in us. It's not just this intellectual hanging on to truth. Mark chapter 1, verse 23, 24 says, An unclean spirit, demon, cried out, saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus and Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So they recognize, look, 
They know who Jesus is. 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. So that, again, they recognize that, that they are where they are because of God. They know who He is. They know who Jesus is. It doesn't produce a saving faith. So there's no question that the beliefs of, of, of these demons align with the basic tenets of the Christian faith. They know that Jesus saves. That's why they're trying to prevent people from getting to Jesus. The difference is that belief is not faith. Faith requires action, or, or not that it requires it, it's evidenced by action and a dependence on Jesus in everything that we do. It causes the follower of Jesus to become more like Jesus. Like it's transformative. Belief is merely intellectual reasoning that does not require anything of me. In this scenario, we see that the demon attempts a destructive play in order to hinder the father from bringing the boy to Jesus. And it's important for us to understand that the demons will always do that. They always attempt to distract and prevent us from going to Jesus. Always. And, and it shows itself in a lot of different ways. Like, sure, okay, so here they're using this, this fear tactic of, and, and, and physical tactic, right, of, of, of assaulting this, this boy. But I want us to consider, and, and, it, and it strikes me, strikes me, and I think some of us probably have to hear it today. Like, what keeps us from getting to Jesus? What are those things that are distractions? What are those things that prevent us from going to Jesus? This type of demonic outburst is not something that we may commonly see today, but we do still see things keeping us from getting to Jesus. Like, listen to me. There are hundreds of things in our lives and experiences keeping us from really and truly getting to Jesus. Like maybe we've been so wounded by somebody that we've got this unforgiveness in our life and, and this unforgiveness kind of puts this, this cap on the impact that the Holy Spirit can have in the transforming of our, of our lives, right? Because we're hanging on to this thing. And so we, we're unforgiving, which by the way is a sin. We become bitter, which is a sin. We, we may not often speak ill of the person, but we certainly will feel ill of the person. And maybe even if you don't, but, but you just don't want to forgive Again, Jesus has some pretty strong words about that. And so maybe that's the thing. Maybe we've got this habitual sin in our lives that we just keep going to instead of going to Jesus. And you know what I'm talking about. Like maybe you're dealing with drugs. Maybe you're dealing with alcohol. Maybe you're dealing with pornography. Maybe you're dealing with gossip. Maybe you're dealing with romance novels, novels, whatever it is that you're doing to get that dopamine hit in order to make you feel good in the moment, which just ultimately ends up making you feel like trash so that it just creates this ugly spiral of downward spiral of you desiring this dopamine hit to feel good and, and it actually makes you feel bad so you go down. Like these are things that prevent us from getting to Jesus and they distract us. Yeah, there's another thing. It's this idea of self-determination that actually distracts us from getting to Jesus, prevents us from getting to Jesus. It's the idea that, that well, my pride, right, builds on the idea that I can do this on my own. And so if I do this on my own, I don't even consider Jesus in it. And so I'm not dependent on him in it. It's another way that the evil one distracts us and prevents us from going to Jesus. But the reality is that the scripture tells us to go to him with everything in prayer and petition. In everything. And so there isn't actually a time when I should be trying to go it alone. 
I need to become more dependent. And my effectiveness for the kingdom is going to be directly proportionate to my dependency on the king. We rely on ourselves with our issues and we're unwilling to step forward to Jesus. So hear this. Every single one of those things that keeps us from coming to Jesus is just as demonic in its origin as this little boy's experience or this young boy's experience. Instead of living in freedom and forgiveness and wholeness, we live shadow lives in misery until we finally turn to Jesus. And we say things like this, man, I tried everything. Now I think I'm going to pray. Man, that's, that's just an indicator of this. Like you've tried everything and it was self-focused and it's self-determinism and, and this idea that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Like there's no language of submission in there. And, and so like the, we're to take everything to Jesus. So when I go to Jesus, I then get my marching orders. Like Jesus will inform me through his word and through prayer about what I need to do next. But, but I start with him. Like he's the starting block. I'm not. And so if something's keeping you back, I urge you, just like this father did for his son, come to Jesus. Let him heal and and restore you. Like find life in Christ and stop trying to make it your own and all about you and, and your own efforts. Make Jesus first. I think John the Baptist, I, I keep going back to this because I just can't get the thought out of my head. John the Baptist said it the best. Uh, Here's a guy who was famous. He was known by political leaders. He was known by religious leaders. He had a great following of people coming after him. And when he encounters Jesus, he's talking to one of his disciples and he says, I must become less so that he becomes more. That's what we're talking about. I need to be less so that he's more. And when he's more and I'm more dependent, I get to be more effective. I get to experience more joy because I'm becoming more and more like Him. So my hope and prayer for you is that you will become more and more like Jesus and less and less like you. I'll become more like Jesus and less and less like you. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here and I pray, Lord, that that, that whatever is of me and, and should not be taken forward by anyone who's taken in this teaching, Lord, that that would just get left on the floor, uh, but that only that which is of you is remembered. Lord, that we would be a people who become less about us and more about you. Lord, we wouldn't lean into our pride. We wouldn't lean into our discouragements. We, wouldn't, uh, we would recognize that, that we're actually in a war and there's constantly attacks all around us and that we need to press into you and not just pressing into our ways of doing things. Lord, would you forgive us of trying to go it on our own? In your name I pray. Amen.